Good morning and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a vision for you big book study. My name is Sally A. from South Jersey and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Thursday, January 8, 2015. Today we are reading from the AA Big Book and we will begin reading on page 34, the last paragraph beginning with, How Then Shall We Help? Today's readers are, for the 12 Steps, Robin L., the 12 Traditions, Nancy S., and our readers will be Alice M., Elaine B., Charles H., and Sylvia F. The share ID for Wednesday, January 7th, is 7169. The OA Preamble, Overeaters Anonymous, is a fellowship of individuals who through shared experience, strength, and hope are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose OA's fifth tradition states each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book Study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Robin L., to read the 12 steps. Robin, press star one, please. There we go. Sorry about that. This is Robin L. from uh, Virginia, com- Recovered Compulsive Overeater. <clears throat> the 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless uh-huh. over powerless over food, that our lives had become uncomfortable. Can you hear me? I can. Keep going. Okay, thank you. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you, Robin L. I will now ask Nancy S. to read the 12 traditions. 
Good morning, Sally. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nancy S. from Wisconsin, and I'm a recovering compulsive overeater. The 12 traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for a group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous, except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. 10. Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. 11. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. 12. Anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you for letting me do this service, and I pass. Thank you, Nancy S. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you Good morning. share to approximately three Good morning. Minutes. Can you please press mute, uh, unmute or mute, sir? Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirements for moderator is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing that the directions in the big book, what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star one to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass. Then press star one to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speakers should be muted. Today, we resume our study of the big book on page 34, paragraph 4, beginning with, How then shall we help? I will ask Alice M. to get us started with two paragraphs, ending with, What is he thinking? Alice M.? Thank you, Sally. This is Alice M. from Florida, compulsive overeater. How then shall we help our readers determine to their own satisfaction whether they are one of us? 
the experiment of quitting for a period of time will be helpful, but we think we can render an even greater service to alcoholic sufferers and perhaps to the medical fraternity. So we shall describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking, for obviously this is the crux of the problem. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? Friends who have reasoned with him after a spree, which has brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy, are mystified when he walks directly into a saloon. Why does he? Of what is he thinking? And um, the, from my experience, the quitting, I did, you know, the experiment of quitting for a period of time, I had my own version of what quitting meant. And, you know, I, because for me, I now I see it as a different way. If I had seen it as um, quitting probably means for me um, getting a food plan and weighing and measuring all my food. That's just the physical part of it. That's what quitting would have meant to me. But for me, I thought, okay, well, quitting to me just means not binging and puking. Let me try that. You know, let me try that. Um, Forget about anything else around the food. Um, And I could do that on willpower alone. So I was a little, you know, I I thought, well, maybe I am not one of these. But um, I think... uh, you know, we each have to look at what honestly, with deep honesty, what quitting actually means. Because I think that is the same as when Bill says entire, or Dr. Silkworth says entire abstinence. Um, what exactly is that? And um, the next paragraph, um, you know, for me, uh, you know, I, I picked up with my bulimia after a 12-year period of not. And during that time, I had, I became a mother, a wife, I was a good member of the community. And so what, you know, what what was going on in my thinking when I picked back up? Um, it just doesn't make sense. Um, so it's that, it's, it's that part that helps qualify me as, you know, one of those. It's like, you know, you just, it just doesn't make sense. Why would I do that? Um, and then just one last thing quickly is that um, also further, when I um, I had a terrible relapse and I ended up going to treatment a few years ago, and my husband came in, and it was an awful one year I put my husband and daughter through before I got into treatment. Um, I pretty much almost died, and it was really very selfish of me, uh, but I was sick. And when I was in treatment, my husband came one Sunday and with my daughter, and he took me aside. And he said, I will not go through this again. We won't go through this again. If you relapse, um, I'm taking I'm taking Lauren and we're leaving and and I knew that he would he had Al-Anon strong Al-Anon background strong AA and he knew how to take care of himself and his daughter and I knew that he was telling the truth and yet um, six uh, one year later what did I do I went back out so um, you know it just it it doesn't it, he was mystified you know and and just so it just doesn't it just doesn't make sense so that's I'm definitely one of those so. Um, we all have to see how we qualify for, in rigorous, you know, use rigorous honesty around how we're exactly setting those parameters for qualification, I think. And I pass with that. Thank you. Thank you, Alice, so much. And who would like to share on these two paragraphs? Sylvia. Yeah. Julia. Larry. Sylvia. Okay. Hold on, everybody. Lisa. Hold on. Sylvia. Uh, I heard Julie. 
I heard somebody else, then I heard Larry, then I heard Rabia. And Vakim. Lisa. Lisa, did I hear Rebecca? I think Rebecca is the third. And Kim. Okay, guys. I hope I got this right. Sylvia, Julie, Rebecca, Larry, Rabia, Kim, I heard you first, and then Lisa, and I'm sorry if I didn't hear somebody else. Um, oh, I'm sorry. It's Vasa. Vasa that I missed. Sorry about that. Sylvia, Julie, Vasa, Larry, Rabia, Kim, and Lisa. Let's go with that. Go ahead, Sylvia. Hi. Good morning, everybody. This is Sylvia, Recovered Compulsive Overeater in frozen upstate New York. And um, what a great um, share to launch us. What a great reading. And so many good people coming up that I'm going to keep this short. But I just wanted to address, you know, that the part about the relapse and – We've talked about it so much on this meeting over the years. So what that was like for me that, you know, because it said, what was was the situation that was going to set up? What was going to happen to make us go out and do that research again? And that amnesia that I had for years would astound even me as it happened. Because I, you know, I remember multiple times that I had absolutely no plan or thought to stop at that mini mart, which was my version of the local bar. I mean, I would had, and then even if I pulled up, I thought, I'll go in and get a bottle of water. And I still would have no plan right into where I was picking up things that I was going to eat that I had no plan. I had literally no plan to eat. And I could not remember what that food would do to me. I, knew, I I only knew at that moment what it would do for me. I needed ease and comfort. But I was so disconnected from my own thinking and my own feeling that I didn't even know that I was doing it. And I didn't realize until working the steps and practicing this program for so long that if I had a feeling that was uncomfortable, which was most of my feelings, that translated into... I need to eat. It it was so direct that I was not even aware of that that was going on. And so when I worked the steps, when I followed the directions of the big book exactly as prescribed, and I started to get to practice the pause, and I was doing the 10th the step all the time, that's when I finally got to see that link. Because otherwise... It felt like amnesia, but I was just in a cycle that I couldn't break because I didn't even see it happening. And what happened is that the steps revealed that through working those steps, that pause, that 10, 11, uh, 10, 11 to 12, allowed me to see the connection. So I didn't have to do that anymore. By the grace of God, I haven't had to do that for quite some time. And with that, I pass. Thank you for letting me share. Thank you so much, Sylvia. And I'm going to ask everyone to try to keep their sharing to about three minutes so that many people can share on these paragraphs. Julie. Hi, my name is Julie. Hi, I'm Julie R., Recovered Compulsive Overeater in California. Thank you, Sally, for your service. You know, the first thing that hits me is some of the mental states that precedes a relapse and what sort of thinking dominates the alcoholic overeater. 
I don't think like a normal person. My thinking is flawed. And I never wanted to believe that, even though I knew it was true. But if I could just find that next right diet, even, you know, I, I've been in OA since 81. I knew I was a compulsive overeater. But yet when I would relapse, I would take that first bite, not thinking that I was going to get over on it. But I didn't care because, again, my thinking is flawed. It's like I'm going to deal with it next time. Well, one time I, I gained 100 of my 150 pounds back with that first bite. Um, and I've shared that before. You know, I had three years of back-to-back weight, you know, and measured food on and on and on. And I binged and purged in a Chinese restaurant, and I was off and running. So my thinking is flawed, so I can never, ever, ever rely on my thinking, except now that I've had my spiritual experience and I continue to live in 10, 11, and 12. What is the whole process of that spiritual transformation? It's to have my thinking in alignment with God. Every day, as soon as I wake up, God, help me. What, show me what you want me to do today. And that's why I love that serenity prayer. And I love the third step prayer. It's like, you know, God, here I am. Help me make those right decisions. Because left on my own devices, I will not make the right choice. And friends and family, I mean, my family, before I, um, thank God I'm out of that relapse I was in, but my family had a meeting. They were so concerned, my two boys and my husband. What are we going to do for mom? You know, let's help her. Let's do whatever we can. I mean, it affects so many people in our lives. And it's not that I didn't love my husband and my, my children. It was just that I was in the throes of the disease. And, you know, I like to say now that I'm in the throes of the recovery. You know, I, I do my daily disciplines. Um, somebody shared something the other day about the tools. You know, the tools are the handrails of the steps. And, um, you know, I do whatever I have to do to stay in um, recovery because that thinking at any time, I can w- I wake up in the morning an addict until I bring God into my life. So I just want to... Um, just tell everybody this this is where it's at. So thank you so much, Pat. Oh, thank you, Julie. And Vasa, your turn. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. My name is Vasa O Recover Compulsive Overeater, Overeater calling from 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 Florida. I have been in a in a relapse for 25 years of my life, gaining and losing. Oh, I, you know, I, you know, everything that has pretty much everybody that has done on this meeting or I go to my meetings, I've done it all by my own thinking, by own my own power, and I came to the point it just didn't work anymore. And I thank God that I was brought into Overeaters Anonymous and into the big book. You know, years ago, we didn't have as many literature, so I started with the big book. And for me, was the, the key for me was to admit, admitting that I was powerless over the food. I could not manage it. I could not control it by myself. And I needed to find a power greater than myself to help me. And I was ready, and I was willing to surrender and... Uh, and that's what I did. And I, I could not stand the pain anymore. You know, I just, I could not stand the pain anymore. And I was ready. 
I remember saying to my sponsor, I am willing and I'm ready to do whatever you tell me to do. And she said, don't do anything, anything to hurt yourself or something to hurt anybody else. I thought she meant physically, you know, don't get a gun and shoot somebody, you know. No, I wasn't to that point, but I was hurting myself by keep on eating the way I was doing. I was destroying my body, you know. But anyways, I could not get my abstinence. I would not be abstinent today without God, and I would not have God without my, without my abstinence. Because the food would be my God. There's no room for God there. So I'm just so, so grateful that, uh, you know, I was brought into um, the Overeaters Anonymous and I was ready and I was willing. And I thank for, thank for everybody, me listening and identifying and sharing your, your recovery. I'm just so blessed to be back again at this vision for you. And thank you for letting me share my past. Thank you, Vasa. And Larry, it's your turn. Thanks, Sally. Um, Larry K., Recovery Compulsive Reader from Chicago. Um, so how should we help uh, readers determine to their own satisfaction whether they're one of us? You know, go ahead and try to put it down. You know, continue to try. You'll never put it down because I, t- I try to persuade you to put it down. You know, you think your sponsor as I did, that your sponsor is going to do this for you. Your sponsor is going to want recovery more for you than you want it for yourself. Dream on, Larry. Never going to happen. The crux of the problem, you know, my mental state will tell me a new relationship, a new job, a new geography, a new home, all those things uh, are the answer. They're not the answer. This, This paragraph drives home for me that once we've lost the ability to gain control over our binge eating, it's gone. You're never going to regain control. No amount of my willpower, my self-control will ever work. And if I think I can outsmart this thing, this disease, I can outrun it. It's like trying to outrun cancer without treatment. You know, good luck to me. It's not going to happen. Smarter men and women than me have tried, and they've all failed, if they're a true uh, uh, alcoholic or have an alcoholic mind like mine. I'll never overcome this spiritual malady with my physical remedies. And I had to get that into my, into my skull. You know, here, here it is more than, you know, 75 years or so after the solution was published in 1939, the, re- the remedy unchanged in all that time. And yet I was to still, I was hell-bent on debating its merit. You know, not me. I'm different. More self-deception, more delusion. Uh, you know, uh, not now. It's not the perfect time, you know, more rationalization, more paralysis because I'd overanalyze, you know, not this, it, it won't work for me. Well, that was my contempt prior to investigation. It'll work for you, but not for me. And then I'm dead. You know, once we're dead, the debate's over. You know, we could debate and analyze ourselves right into the grave. This disease is clearly progressive. This disease is fatal. And uh, for as long as I thought that it wasn't, I would stay stuck in the quicksand thrashing about, holding my breath underwater, working tools, rather than the practical program of action. You know, what is it about a mind like mine that will try to convince myself that the lie is indeed plausible while the truth is fiction? You know, I had to surrender. Thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't live like that anymore. With that, I'll pass. Thank you, Larry. And Rabia, you're up. 
Good morning, my dear fellow visionaries. This is Rabia. I am a recovered compulsive overeater from New York. Rabia M. I know we like to say our last initials. And so I'd like to share two things, and thank you, everyone, for being here and your sharing. In the second paragraph, the desperate experiment of the first drink Well, here's the total insanity of my disease. I was never desperate. When I took that first bite, I was never desperate because I had lost weight. I was getting slim again. And I always started overeating abstinent organic food. And it was I wasn't desperate. I was happy. You know, I could eat again. You know, I could start adding foods back to my um, food plan because I had lost the weight. And and they were always, you know, we talk about the red foods, the yellow, the green foods. Well, they were always my yellow foods that I can eat some of the time. What I didn't understand about those foods is they were the gateway to my red foods, to my killer foods, to my alcoholic foods. And and I wouldn't weigh and measure them. Like, you know, if if I have foods on my yellow list, and I want to see if I can eat them. I, I need to be able to eat one portion of them and then not eat them for a couple of weeks. You know, it, they're not foods that I can uh, eat every meal if I want to. <laughs> um, how, that's not how I do it. I mean, I'm learning that now. So, um, so anyway, it was never, ever felt desperate. It felt desperate a couple of days after I started overeating because then I couldn't stop and I was getting fat really fast. So the desperation came after that first bite and that's a total insanity for me because when I had that mental obsession that told me I could start overeating again, I, I believed it. And the other thing I wanted to share about very quickly I have one minute left, is um, the first paragraph, how then shall we help our readers? And and how then shall we help our readers? Because we must be doing loving service. Um, if we don't give this away, we're not going to keep what we have right now today. If I've been guided through the big book, then I must be giving away what was so freely given to me. If I'm up to the 10th step, I must be giving away what I already have. If I have five days abstinent, then I must be calling who are coming on the line. There's so many people on this line who are desperate and looking for help and not having phone calls answered. So I want to remind all of us, loving service, the best way to keep whatever we have in this moment, wherever we are in this journey of recovery, we must be giving away whatever was so freely given to us up until right now. And much love. Thank you for letting me share. Thank you, Rabia. And Kim G. Good morning, Sally. Good morning, all. My name is Kim G. And I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. What sort of thinking dominates, dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first strength? You know, back in the 1930s when this book was being published, there was something called temperance societies because the belief by society is not, the problem isn't that these alcoholics drink. The problem is they get drunk. So how can we teach them to drink without getting drunk? 
I think, isn't that what society tells us? The problem isn't that we eat. The problem is that we overeat. So we have to learn how to eat moderately. And we're being told here the desperate experiment of the first drink. It's the first bite because we have the allergy of the body. And I just looked up the definition of the word dominate. It means to rule over, to govern, control. Doesn't that explain, this explains my obsession of the mind, my inability to have a choice about taking that first drink. So I just wanted to give you some examples of the thinking that dominates me before that first bite. The thinking that dominates me when I'm abstinent, when quote-unquote things are going my way. I remember one binge started because I'm in the grocery store and I'm going through the line and I'm looking. They made white chocolate peanut butter cups. I've never had a white chocolate peanut butter cup. How could I not try a white peanut butter cup? And checking it and saying it's only 350 calories, I should be able to have one. I remember walking out of this gym that I had lost so much weight in that there was actually a before and after picture hanging on the wall of the gym and had a really good workout and thought, you know what, I think I'm just going to have one slice of pizza. And that led to a relapse where I couldn't go back to the gym because I put the weight back on. I didn't want to be in a gym where my before and after picture was there. The big one for me is I'm not going to binge. I just need to take the edge off. I just need to take the edge off. I wasn't going to binge. I just need to get right because that's the delusion in my mind. The food is just going to make me feel right. I remember when I used to babysit in high school. I didn't pick my jobs according to what the kids were like. I would check out their pantries, and if their pantries were good enough, then I would take the job again. And just this past week, I was contacted on Facebook by one of my college roommates, and it just reminded me of some things. I used to schedule my classes at mealtimes in order for me to be able to go to the cafeteria and have the excuse just to come to my dorm room and binge. She used to have entermans in there because she was really skinny, and her dad would buy her entermans so that she could not lose weight, and I used to eat them all, and she used to be so upset because why, of all these entomans that she was eating, wasn't she putting weight on? And I would just sit there and go, I don't know, Tricia, I don't understand. That was the thinking that dominated me. And I'm just going to end with this, because on page 73, I hear it, and it hits me. I still want to enjoy a certain reputation, but knowing my heart, I do not deserve it. That's the thinking. And because of that, I'm under constant fear and tension, and that makes for more eating. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. And Lisa, Lisa, what is the first initial of your last name? Yes, hi. My name is Lisa M. And okay. I'm from Massachusetts. And um, thank you, everyone. Good morning, visionaries. Um, my name is Lisa, and I'm a recovering compulsive overeater. And what I wanted to say about this, this pat, these two paragraphs was, um, you know, I can remember before I came into Vision for You, I was in regular OA, and, you know, I had been reading the steps. I just never did them. I didn't understand how this was supposed to work. I'm reading them, and, you know, and I would hear, you know, read about these this strange um, mental uh, spot, these blank spots. So, you know, I used to write cards, you know, right on these uh, cue cards and that, you know, that, uh, you know, this is what a binge looks like. Don't forget your last binge. You want to lose weight. You've already taken so that when I was, was getting the urges, I would take these cards out and I would look at them. And that 
still didn't work. I would still be walking down to the refrigerator, saying to myself, well, read your card, Lisa, read your card. And I'd be opening up the refrigerator going, what is wrong with you? You're reading your card. Don't you remember this is what you're doing? And I would still be eating. It was just so strange. And uh, it just felt so odd that I just couldn't, like, stop my arm from going into the refrigerator. And, you know, so I would keep going back out. I would go back out and come back in and just think, well, it doesn't even work for me. And and it and it really wasn't until I started listening to the Vision View where I, you know, listened to everyone and we're looking at the, the big quote word by word, phrase by phrase. It made so much sense to me. And now I am working with somebody and we're actually going to the steps. I'm working with steps. And it has just been so awesome, and I just feel so wonderful about this this uh, process that I'm doing. It's just so much better, and thank God for OA, and thank God for Vision for You and that I've had. Okay, thank you so much, and I'm going to jump in here myself before we before I open it up again for more shares. It's Sally A. in South Jersey, a recovered compulsive overeater, and I, too, want to speak to these very, very important sentences on the top of page 35. So we shall describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking. For obviously, this is the crux of the problem. And of course, it goes on to say, what sort of thinking? You know, what is wrong with me? And so I just wanted to, um, let me get my timer going here. Um, I wanted to say that, um, you know, you all know, many of you know my story and how I, you know, I was abstinent for five years. And then the, the, the planes went flying into the towers, and two of my children were in Manhattan at the time, uh, my 19-year-old and, at the time and my 21-year-old at that time. And I freaked out, and I, the first thing, I, I, all I could think of was, I got to have a piece of pizza. And one bite of pizza one bite of pizza truly led me to a 110-pound weight gain over the next 10 years. And so I look at these words, for obviously this is the crux of the problem. Now let me say that these paragraphs that we're reading are on the wings of this word, of the word that we just had yesterday. This is the baffling feature. This is the baffling feature. This mental, you know, I like to think of it as, Selective dementia. I mean, I work with patients all the time who have dementia. And there's this weird selective dementia when it comes to, you know, what it felt like, what it looked like, and how I behaved when I was binging. And it's like a a strange dementia. But when we look at these words here, the crux of the problem, I want to take you to page 92, which says, tell him how baffled you were, how you finally learned that you were sick. Give him an account of the struggles you made to stop. Show him the mental twist. And that's what we're talking about. Call it the mental twist. Call it the crux of the problem, which is the mental state that precedes the relapse into eating. Mystified. That word that we see in that next paragraph means puzzled, confused, bewildered, perplexed, baffled. I was baffled for most of my life. So glad I'm here. Thanks for letting me share. Who else would like to share on these? Marcella. Marcella. Who else? Monica. Leah. Leah. Who else? 
Monica. Monica, good morning. Okay, let's go with you three. Rakefit? Rakefit, right after that. Marcella, go ahead. Good morning. My name is Marcella. <clears throat> I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. So the desperate attempt of the first drink and of what is he thinking, it reminds me that, um, I think it's the last paragraph of We Agnostics where he says, um, once more, at certain times, we don't have a mental defense against the first drink. I'm sharing today because uh, for the last three and a half, I've had an obsession, obsession with cough syrup because I have the flu in, and I'm sick in bed. And, um, and because cough syrup is not a food itself, it kind of crept, crept in in my mind. Wouldn't it be nice to have cough syrup? And the reason that I don't have it is because most cough syrups have sweet in it, and I cannot handle anything sweet. But it has been so strong, like constantly, constantly in my mind, cough syrup, cough syrup, cough syrup. That is a mental obsession, that peculiar twist of the mind. But this time, thank you, God, I have you, all of you, and I have, um, I spoke to my, my sponsor, and my sponsor said, great. That kind of like always surprises me. Like, what does one thing have to do with the other? Yeah, I remember your connection with your higher power and other um, remedies, right? That doesn't include cough syrup if you have the cough. Uh, chewing ginger, that has helped. Uh, chicken broth, that has helped. Um, yes, anything spicy and, and that you can drink and hot, that, that has helped. But this time, I have a mental defense. Now, given to my own um, devices and by myself, my mind would have convinced me, come on, Marcella, you're sick in bed, you have the cough, the doctor prescribed you cough syrup, drink the cough syrup for God's sakes. But then I remember stories like Sally just shared, one bite of pizza meant a 100 pounds in the course of 10 years. I'm convinced, convinced that one full spoon of cough syrup will, will set me in a horrific binge, and I'm not sure if I have another recovery in me. So it's a lot easier to just keep going. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Marcella. Leah, go ahead. Leah Thanks M. so much, Sally. Good morning, everybody. This is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? And, you know, this teaching saved my life, you know, because I was always uh, focused in on a physical solution, but I was finally taught after five years of sitting in OA that it was my thinking, Um, you know, because... You see, when I abstained from my binge foods, when I was off of them for a while and I had numerous experiences of that, I would start to feel uncomfortable. I would start to feel deprived. I would be impatient. I felt like I was on the edge. Uh, The jealousy was more intense. The resentment was more intense. The guilt was more intense. And I began to feel restless, irritable, and discontent. And, of course, those feelings and those thoughts would begin to crowd my mind Uh, to such a great degree and get so loud that I had to shut them up. And the only way I would know how to shut them up and get relief 
would be to pick up that first bite. And, of course, then I would trigger the phenomenon of craving, and I was off to the races. And the big book calls it the obsession of the mind, and the big book taught me that that is the main problem, and it centers in my mind. I remember being in college, and I remember coming home from school, and I remember that I had been eating sanely for a number of months, you know, three meals a day and visits to the gym, and I was at goal weight, and I was feeling so much better. And suddenly, on the way home, this thought crossed my mind that a candy bar at 95 pounds would not hurt me. So I stopped at a convenience store, and I got one king-sized candy bar. And this experiment went so well, because I didn't look much different the next day, that I had another. And then I had chips, and then I had a box of donuts, and then I went to a drive through and then I ate a gallon of ice cream. And, of course, this started one more trip to the asylum for me. So it was the big book and people who had cracked this text open that taught me that this these foods were not my problem. In fact, they were my solution. How I felt when I was sober, how I felt when I was food sober, abstinent, that was my problem, that I was restless, that I was irritable, that I was discontent, and I had to pick up again. And these people who had recovered told me that selfishness and self-centeredness was the root of my trouble. I had no idea of that. I had no clue. The big book suggests I had a defective mind, that I was inherently flawed and suffering from this obsession, that this obsession would dominate me and drive me back into the food. And thank God, there's a program of recovery. The 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous treated that ism within me. And the program of recovery was allowed, you know, uh, and the implementation of the steps drove out that obsession of the mind and finally allowed me to be free. And with that, I pass. Thanks. Thank you, Leah. And Monica, it's your turn. Good morning, Sally. Good morning, everyone. My name is Monica T, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Ditto after that. I, I'm, I'm not too sure here what I can add after what Leah just said. Um, just n- nails it. She nails it every time. All right, so here we are in a chapter more about alcoholism. And so this whole chapter is dealing with the mental obsession. This part of my disease, this crux of my disease, the, the core of my problem is that I have an alcoholic mind. I didn't know that. You know, I read this and I thought, okay, I got this weird thinking here. And, uh, you know, I can even remember using that as an excuse. Well, you know, I just don't remember. I just don't remember these things. Um, But then one day it dawned on me that, like the big book says, you know, this is what an alcoholic mind is. This is part of your disease. You don't remember anything you don't remember the consequences you don't have any memory of that last binge you don't have memory of the resolution you made 15 minutes ago that you weren't going to eat anymore that when I've put the food down and I'm abstinent but I'm not working the steps I haven't gone through the process then I get very restless irritable and discontented and my default mechanism is food is going to fix it, is going to make it better. That's part of the mental obsession. And this mental obsession, this abnormal thinking that I have, it's so, so powerful that when that thought comes into my head, nothing, it moves everything else out. There's nothing else can, it's going to overrule, override anything. 
So many times I didn't even think about anything before I got into the food. It was later it was like, how did this happen again? Well, there wasn't any memory. And my brain, my disease subconsciously is telling me, Monica, food is going gonna, is gonna to make you feel better. And, you know, totally, totally powerless over this. And this is why I needed a power greater than me. Because, number one, I would do what I didn't want to do. And I couldn't do what I wanted to do. I was screwed. My will, my thinking, my disease, mine would go either way. And I was totally powerless. Wow. And that's why I needed to work through these steps and get the spiritual awakening, which is a change in my thinking, my attitudes, my behaviors. And, um, but, you know, this is really powerful to think that this obsession of the mind overrules everything. It's so powerful. I don't remember anything. But that's what I experienced for decades. And thank God for this book. Thank God for AA. And we have a solution. It's called A Power Greater Than Us. And I'll pass. Thank you, Monica. Let's go ahead and get started with the story of Jim. And I'm going to ask Elaine B., would you please begin reading for us? Our first example is a friend we shall call Jim and read to the bottom of the page for us. Elaine? Sure, Sally. Thank you very much. Our first example is a friend we shall call Jim. This man is a charming wife and family. He inherited a lucrative automobile agency. He had a commendable World War record. He is a good salesman. Everybody likes him. He's an intelligent man, normal so far as we can see, except for a nervous disposition. He did no drinking until he was 35. In a few years, he became so violent when intoxicated that he had to be committed. On leaving the asylum, he came into contact with us. We told him what we knew of alcoholism and the answer we had found. He made a beginning. His family was reassembled, and he began to work as a salesman for the business he had lost through drinking. All went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. To his consternation, he found himself drunk half a dozen times in rapid succession. On each of these occasions, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in serious condition. He knew he faced another trip to the asylum if he kept on. Moreover, he would lose his family for whom he had a deep affection. And so here is a very powerful story that in many levels, you know, um, we can identify in on. You know, I think about the word baffled that, that it said on the previous page and, um, you know, it's like stunned, confused, don't understand it, don't get it, you know. Uh, this guy was 35. He was a nice guy. Everybody liked him, good salesman, world, uh, war hero, you know, um, charming wife and family. Everybody must have been, what the heck is going on with this guy? Why is he doing this? All of those different things. But you know what? I bet even himself, he was baffled. Why am I doing this? You know, he, he went to the point where he was in an asylum. Oh, my gosh. He was having very difficult reactions to life, obviously. Who knows what it was? Maybe it was the pressure of inheriting this business. 
he didn't build this business. He inherited it. All of a sudden, it was handed to him, and he already had a nervous disposition. Maybe he did great as a salesman. We don't really know what the background is. We don't know what made him restless, irritable, and discontent. We don't know what drove him to the drink. But what we do know is that he is one of us. When he find, you know, he went to the to the asylum. He lost his family. He lost his business, and still. You know, he he heard about this. He made a beginning. He started the work. And still, to his consternation, he found himself drunk. Not just once, half a dozen times in rapid succession. That's the allergy of the body. You know, no matter what's going on, he's not not drinking because he's thirsty. He's drinking because he has no choice. He has, he's responding to that allergy that his body is demanding, this alcohol, even though it makes him violent, even though he lost his business, even though he loves his wife and family and he's going to lose them. So what did they do? Did they kick him out? Did they say, I'm not going to work with you anymore? No, no. Um, on each occasion, they reviewed carefully what had happened. Well, why did this happen? We have the big clue here. He failed to enlarge his spiritual life. So we can put down the alcohol. We can put down the food. We can even work with people. We can gain an understanding of ourselves. But if we fail to enlarge our spiritual life, we we can all do this. We're not recovered. I mean, we're not cured. We're recovered one day at a time based on the maintenance of a spiritual condition. And so this helped him understand that he had a very, very serious condition and he was either headed to the asylum and, and completely losing his family if he didn't continue, didn't admit his powerless, if he didn't utterly concede that he could never safely drink again. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Charles H., please. Thank there you. you. We have time for just one or two. Charles, of course. And is there one other who would like to share? And tomorrow, of course, we'll revisit these paragraphs again, so there's nothing to worry about. Charles, is there one more who would like to share? Okay, Charles, take it away. Hi, thank you, Sally, for your service. Um, Good morning, visionaries. My name is Charles H., a recovered visionary just for today, and I eat too much. And I say that because I live in 10, 11, 12, and 1 every single day. Oh, man, this is some good stuff here, man, like, I could so identify in with, you know, the mental state that precedes a, a relapse into drinking, you know, is the crux of my problem, the main part, the root. The mental obsession is the crux of my problem, right? And, you know, I, I, I love Jim. I love Jim because, um, yeah, I got, I, I got a nervous disposition as well, and, and I'm in serious condition. You know, every single day I take step one and, and, and believe in step one. And, and, like, on page 43, it says, um, you know, most of us had to be pretty badly mangled, right? I so identify in with being pretty mangled. And I love how the big book dresses up, especially in this chapter three, dresses up so the individuals that say, you know, he, 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 made, a, he made a beginning. His family's reassembled. He began to work as a salesman for the business he had lost through drinking, Um but but then the next sentence is the key, man. I got to bust out of prison on this one. All went well for a time, and he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. 
like 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 all that outside stuff don't mean nothing. It's an inside job. What does it say on page? What does it say on the top of the page? Men, the mental state is the crux of the problem. So if 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 I enlarge my spiritual life on a daily basis, I'm armed. I'm armed, right, just for today to deal with the crux of my problem. You know, and then page 36, you know, I know I'm, I'm jumping ahead, but it describes my disease in one word. Suddenly, like Leo um, just said beautifully, suddenly throw across my mind. I don't care what I'm doing. I could be leading a bunch of meetings, 12-step minister, 12-tradition king, and, and suddenly the thought crossed my mind, and I'm back down, back down again. You know, and what happened? You know, you ever go to meetings and you hear, you know, oh, um, how much time you got absent? And, and the person raised their hand. Um, yeah, I got three years, 11 months, and whatever, whatever. And then when they qualify, you know, when they share from the floor, oh, you know, my food is slippery. But but in the next breath, I didn't, I didn't call my sponsor. I haven't been to a meeting since Jesus was a baby walking the earth. Of course. And I didn't meditate for, for, for a year. So this sentence right here, for me, he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. Like, you know what? I don't care if I breathe for the day. I need to go in the shower, go in the tub, put some, some Epsom salt in, in, in some warm water, and get away from the world for a month, for, for an hour. I need to enlarge my spiritual condition or I'm in deep trouble. And I guess that's my time because I hear a lot of breathing in the background. I know I share good, but wow. <laughs> Thanks for allowing me to share our pack. Thank you, Charles. And Rakefit, I, I made the mistake of not calling on you earlier. Are you by any chance there? I'd love to have you share. Rakefit. Um, yeah, I'm here, Sally. No problem. Go ahead. This is this is Rakefit, Recovered Compulsive Overeater in California. And the thinking, the mental thinking that precedes the first bite, that always baffled me. Always. In the rest of my life, I understand the concept of action and consequence. If I take an action, there's a consequence, cause and effect. If I go to a store and I steal something, I'm going to get arrested. I get it. If I am abusive to a friend, that person won't want to have anything to do with me anymore. I get it. But when it comes to food, I just don't get it. I don't get it. When that overwhelming, that all-encompassing, need, feeling that I have to eat comes over me. Everything else goes out the window. That feeling takes me takes over completely. And even though I can intellectually tell you, yeah, I know I'm going to be sorry after I do this, I don't care. I don't care. And that voice, that need is so strong in me. I think I'm going to die. I feel like I'm going to die if I don't eat. But that changes. That changes when I, when I enlarge my spiritual life. Once I enlarge my spiritual life, that that voice to eat, that urge, that overwhelming obsession doesn't come back to me right now because God is, is louder. God is louder than that voice today. And I'm so grateful because all my rational thinking, all my logical thinking did not stop me from taking that first bite that led me into hell once again, into torture, pure torture. But... um. Expanding my spiritual life, that, that is what helped me. So thank you for letting me share that I pass. Thank you, Rakefit, and thank you to everyone who has shared this morning. We will now close with the reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. 
Charles H., will you please read for us page 164? Our book is meant to be suggestive only. Charles, are you there? Okay. Sylvia, Sylvia S., are you there? Can you please read for us page 164? Yes, I'm here. Sylvia, thank you. Can you go ahead and read for us A Vision for You, page 164? Yes, here we go. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. I pass.